0: I'd say I miss the piano. I just spent the week at OVPC, Ottawa Valley Pentecostal Camp. Fantastic week, but when it's youth camp, it's a lot of synth and keyboard. So there's something just poetic about that soft piano ending. Thank you, Bonnie. I don't know how else to start this other than good morning. Let's start with a smile. Our father has seen it fit that every time I get up to preach, the cycle or our schedule just ends me up with some sort of interesting topic. Not one that comes easy. And so I've had two sex talks with you. So fortunately today, we're not doing that one. We're now going to pain and suffering. But I mean, that is a great... It is a great topic in itself because it is something that too many people lose faith on or fail to grasp God with because they say, if there's pain and suffering, there cannot be a good God. And so, as we've done this summer series of what are questions that your neighbors are asking or that you'd like to have answered, I think this is a fantastic one as much as it's been troubling for me to write because you should have your own theology of pain and suffering and what i mean by theology is your own understanding in the things of god your own understanding in the things of god because this is something that is shared and common between all humanity miracles can come and go not everyone experiences a miracle tragedy on the other hand we will all it is inevitable So it is a shared moment. So you should be able to talk to those who believe and those who don't believe and have an understanding of pain and suffering, why it exists, what to do with it, how to cope, how to deal, and not just a cliche answer. Because i found too often we've done that. We want to give some sort of cliche, easy answer just to sweep it under the the carpet and move on because we don't like dealing with pain and tragedy. Whether it's our own or not, we're like, let's just make it better and move on. So, I don't have a beautiful three-point sermon, and I know I've said that a couple times. Apparently I'm really not Pentecostal in that way and I can't write three-point sermons. But I have some ideas I want to discuss and chew with. So that by the end of this, you might have an idea of your own theology of pain and suffering, that you might have a response for someone else or for your own life. And as I've been writing this, I've really found that you can't talk about pain and suffering with someone who's enduring pain and suffering. So if you are in some sort of hurt or turmoil today, and I offend you, I am sorry. I don't mean to. But with pain and suffering, it's such a matter of the heart that causes such emotion that we come with anger, that we come out with confusion, that when we're in the midst of pain and suffering, we can't really talk about pain and suffering. We need to go through it. And when we come out on the outside, when we can look back in, then we can talk about it and have a different understanding and see why or maybe or, or how to cope and deal with this. So I want to preface it with that, that the problem of pain and suffering is not one to be discussed with someone going through pain and suffering. The problem I also find is that we like to declare God safe. That becomes a hope and a promise for us sometimes. That we're like, God is the safe bet. That's how you get to heaven. That's how you get healed. That's how you get protected. That's how you get saved. We want to say that God is safe. And yet I have not found a scripture that comes to that conclusion. God is good. God is powerful. God is merciful. God is kind. God is loving. Safe is not a word I have found. Most often we find God's people far from safety. We find Psalms, we find Old Testament prophets just crying out to God about affliction and hurt. And it's not a praise of God, I'm so safe and secure. It's God, what do we do? Why is this happening? Where are we going? And so it reminds me of C.S. Lewis and Narnia, which Nellie, if you want to put up the quote, Fairly common, most people have heard this. Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This is an illusion. Or many have placed it as an illusion towards God. That the lion is God. That the whole Chronicles of Narnia has some sort of gospel message within it as much as it's a fantasy and a mythos. But this statement rings so true. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And there is a difference in that. And that's where I find us with pain and suffering. That we want a good God, but we want a safe God. And the two don't always coexist. So today, I want to go through a, a couple of thoughts. And, I, and my reference point for this, because I don't want to say I am an authority at pain and suffering in any way. I mean, my scars and battle wounds all over my body would say different, but I'm not an authority in pain and suffering. I've loved, gr- lived a great life. I've forgotten most of my pain and suffering, and that's what a lot of us are capable of doing. If I recount my testimony, I, I could have so much more trauma in my life in my parents being divorced, in having a suicidal sister, in having my mom in a car accident go into a coma, of my dad just coming out of back surgery and almost being paralyzed. Like, I have all these things that I could be like, I know pain and suffering, but I don't. I have a good God that has allowed me to forget or show me goodness. That, that is more on the front of my mind that I am blessed with a church that loves me. I am blessed with a wife that loves me. I have a great home. I am not dying in debt. I have a, okay, car, but it gets me places. I don't live a painful and suffering life. But my two references for our our sermon today are going to be C.S. Lewis and his Problem of Pain. A hard read. I, I, I spent... The past couple of weeks reading it and I posted quotes up. Some of you disagreed with me and that's okay. I, that's what this should be about. If you disagree with something I say, that's fine. We can chat about it. I'm not going to try and convince you otherwise. But this is the iron sharp and the iron kind of thing that we need to do. We need to figure out what we believe and why we believe it. But then the other person I'm going to reference is 2008 Nate. Because apparently in Bible college I decided to write my final paper in philosophy on the problem of evil. And I was a lot smarter than apparently. So I, that's where I want to start, with my paper, and, and the problem of evil, and I want to use the word evil as transferable back and forth with pain and suffering, because most of the time, that's what we would describe evil as. Why is there pain in the world? Why is there suffering? Why is there evil? It can kind of be lumped in together. If we're going to take it as a logical look and not look at a demonic kind of spiritual evil, if we're just looking at evil in the world, evil that we would do to each other, the pain and suffering we would cause. And so the problem of evil or the logical problem of evil has technically been solved. It's not a problem, philosophically, because it all boils down to this, free will, The argument would go as such. The atheist says, and the Christian would agree, that God is omnipotent, therefore all-powerful. And God is omniscient, and therefore all-good. We would agree with those two statements, yes? Then the problem is, because of the existence of evil in our world, God is either not all-good, though being all-powerful, he is not all-good because evil exists, Or he is not all-powerful because he's wholly good, but he can't eliminate evil. And a lot of times this is where people would walk away from faith because they're like, well, I would agree with that. There's evil in the world, therefore there cannot be a good God. Now, philosophically, we've refuted that because of the problem of free will. The problem of free will. The problem is this. If God creates us with free will, we have to be able to choose. We have to be able to choose. We have to be able to choose what is not of God, which then exacts that evil into the world. If God were to remove that choice from us through his power, then we have lost free will. Or if he would choose to change our mind or change actions, again, we have lost Free will and no longer is our praise no longer is our choice to do good our own it's as if we had a robot that we designed it to pick up cans or leftover bulletins left in the sanctuary after a sermon and its entire job is to pick up that bulletin and throw it in the trash will we then congratulate it and say it's done such an amazing job by picking up the bulletins it knows nothing else. All it knows to do is pick up the bulletin and throw it in the trash. Therefore, if we're ever to respond in good, in thankfulness, in kindness, in prayer, in praise, and we didn't have free will to choose to do it, there's no praise. There's no motive behind it. It's just what we do and we move on. And so in God giving us free will, he has given us the ability to give proper due praise. It has meaning. It has purpose. There's substance behind it versus an empty action. It's like a small child that apologizes because you told them to. We all know when an apology is sincere. But that child will walk up, won't look you in the eye, kind of look the other way and say, like, yeah, I'm sorry. The apology is not sincere. It doesn't have merits. And so, too, comes the problem with free will. If we have free will, we must be able to choose, not of God. So then the concept is that before God created anything at all, actually, you know what, I did slides for the first time because I'm using these big philosophical thoughts, and I'm like, I should write them out. So thank you, Nelly, for doing my slides. Before God created anything at all, he was confronted with an enormous range of choices. He could create or bring into actuality any of the myriads of different possible worlds. Ones where we have only a little bit of free will, we have too much free will, there's a lot of evil, there's all these choices. But being perfectly good, he must have chosen the best of all possible worlds. And hence this world, the one he did create, must, despite appearances, be the best possible. We are in the perfect creation. Yes, there is evil. Yes, there is sin. Yes, there is corruption. Yes, there is pain and suffering. But we also have choice. And so it's a, you get one or the other kind of situation. And so because God has given us this choice, we do live in a perfect creation. Which then brings about this other logical problem of pain, Platinga is the philosopher that is, is noted for f- finishing this philosophical thought that there is no uh, a problem with having an all-powerful and all-good God and evil in the world, that those two can coexist. And Platinga says this, omnipotence, according to Platinga, is the power to do anything that is logically possible. The fact that God cannot do the logically impossible is not, Platinga claims, a genuine limitation of God's power. He would urge those uncomfortable with the idea of limitation on God's power to think carefully about the absurd implications of a God who can do the logically impossible. What I might mean by this is show me a round square. We can't. And if 2 plus 2 can equal 5, then what does 2 plus 3 equal? There is order in creation. There's logic, there's an understanding. As we are gifted with wisdom, we begin to process things. And so God cannot do something that is impossible, and that is a limitation. God has limited his power by giving us free will. And that can be a hard thing to kind of swallow and chew. But if God says, I am going to give you the choice to accept salvation or not, I cannot then force you into it at the same time. We can't have an immovable object and an impenetrable force. They're two opposites. And so we live in this world that has evil because we have choice. God's power, it would seem, is limited by our free choice, not that it is impossible for God to do all things, but rather, in doing so, he would remove our ability for free choice. Well, that's kind of rough. So then C.S. Lewis says this, Why then did God give them free will? Why do it? Because free will, though it makes, every po- makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata of creatures that work like machines, would hardly be worth creating the happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely and voluntarily united to him and to each other. And for that, they must be free. Of course, God knew what would happen if they used their freedom the wrong way. Apparently, he thought it was worth the risk. So that's all nice and, and neat and, and great. Sure, that means that evil can exist, and it doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. But what do we do with it? Because we know that pain's there. And we like to cry out to God about this evil and and this hardship. And, And so one of the thoughts that I've come across is our undeveloped understanding. Our undeveloped understanding of good, of God. Because if God is wiser than we, that means us, his judgment must differ from ours on many things. And not least on good and evil. What seems to us good may therefore not be good in his eyes, and what seems to us evil may not be evil. We like to throw out this term, more, especially common days, is just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. Which I, I heard a, a pastor this week tell me it was utter crap, and I would tend to agree because I've heard that before, because our heart, the scriptures tell us, is def- deceitful above all things. If we just go after what we perceive as good, we can end up with a lot of immorality. We can end up with a lot of pain. We can end up with a lot of hurt. And so what we perceive as good is not always good in God's eyes, and what we perceive as evil is not always evil in God's eyes. And that's why I say we can't have this conversation of what is pain and suffering and what does God intend to do with it if we're in the midst of pain and suffering because then we are consumed by our heart. And what we might think is good and what might save us is far from the truth. But this poses a problem for us as we try and teach the world about Jesus. And what I mean by that. hundreds of years ago, when man started doing its thing, believing in a higher power was really easy. We didn't understand how the world works. So we said, oh, right, there's a greater power that does something. And a lot of time, we attributed a good power and a bad power, and they would battle each other. And that's where you get all our different gods. And we're like, why is the good one allowing all this bad to happen? But as man has developed in his understanding, as God has gifted us to, We start to understand how the world functions and why it functions, and so we've removed our need for these deities. And so, as Christians, when we want to tell someone, "Let me tell you about my God," they're like, "Wait, the God that allows pain in my life? Why would why would I allow that God?" When you're like, "Let me tell you about the sin in your life," wait, wait, I think my life is great. I love me and what I'm doing. Why would I want you to tell me that what I'm doing is not always the best answer? And pain and suffering has kind of created a problem in the Christian faith that we must teach people that there is evil and it's because of our choices of free will that God allowed it and that's okay. It's not a bad thing. Because how do you tell someone they need to be forgiven if they don't think they've done something wrong? And so pain and suffering, it adds this really weird element to us that we must first create the problem of pain in order for the unsaved to grasp a need for a salvation and a savior. And that's really hard for me if I'm going to pray for someone whose mom is dying from cancer and they go, why God? Why did God allow this? Why, is, why am I allowed to have pain? Why am I allowed to suffer? If I just want to be like, well, you know, in the uh, philosophical understanding, Platinga says it's okay that God allowed evil in this world, That that doesn't work. I can't use the cliche of God will never give you more than you can handle. That doesn't work when you're hurting. I can't just throw out Jeremiah twenty nine eleven and be like, for God knows the plans for you to prosper. It's like, no, that doesn't work for me right now. But we need to look at this understanding that God views things differently. That we might not always grasp what God is saying, what God is doing. And that can be hard in its own self. A lot of times we want to attribute nature. We want to look at nature to see God. Well, we're like, well, if we look into nature, we see pain and suffering in that, and that's how we can see God. And unfortunately, I I wouldn't buy that. Nature is not our source of understanding of God's goodness. Rather, it's the canvas to declare God's creativity and power. Nature is not our source of understanding of God's goodness. Rather, it is the canvas to declare God's creativity and power. What I found really interesting is that the four Gospels never start in describing who God is or our need for God by telling us to look at nature. Sure, nature is referenced maybe later, but Matthew starts with the genealogy. Mark starts with a fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah. Luke gives a historical account of everything Jesus did, and John talks about a time before creation where Jesus and God hovered over the earth. Pain and suffering are part of our world, but we need to understand that our God is above, beyond, before, to help us grasp that it's not the end. The second thought I have in this is a God of kindness versus love. And so I want to read an excerpt to you. By the goodness of God, we mean nowadays almost exclusively his lovingness. I could say that's fairly fair. When I talk about the goodness of God, I want to talk about God's love. You listen to most of the songs we sing where God is good, God is love. There's a lot of that coming out. And in this way, we may be right. And by love, in this context, most of us mean kindness. The desire to see others than the self happy. I can follow that logic. If I want to love on someone and I want to be kind, I want to see them happy. Not happy in this way or that, but just happy. And isn't that the goal in life for so many? That's just, I just want to be happy. What would really satisfy us would be a God who said of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter, so long as they are contented? We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven, but as a grandfather in heaven. A senile benevolence, who, as they say, like to see the young people enjoying themselves. I think that's true a lot of times. We get to goodness and then we get to lovingness, and then we get to kindness. And we just want, God, just make me happy. Just be kind. Take away the pain. Take away the suffering. There is kindness in love, but is separated from the other elements of love. It involves a certain fundamental indifference to its object, and even something like contempt of it. Kindness consents very readily to the removal of its objects. We've all met people whose kindness to animals is constantly leading them to kill animals lest they should suffer. Kindness merely merely as such cares not whether its object becomes good or bad provided only that it escapes suffering. If we are looking at God as a God of love it means there will be pain. Kindness has us reflect in only just removing the immediate problem and let us just be happy and move on. Love lets us endure pain for a greater good. There's a growth, there's a change. Kindness is something we would give to strangers. Love is something we give to our family. Lewis puts it this way: it Is for people whom we care nothing about that we demand happiness on any terms with our friends, our lovers, our children. We are exacting and would rather see them suffer much than be happy in a contemptible and estranging modes. If God is love, he is by definition something more than mere kindness. Love hurts. We write poetry. We write songs. But when we love, we allow discipline, we allow hurt because it strengthens and it grows us. We talk about helicopter parents and I apologize if any of you are helicopter parents but there's enough internet drama about helicopter parents of not letting their kids experience any sort of hurt or pain or trouble and giving them, like sanitizing them every 30 seconds so that they get sick so often or they go outside and they get scraped and their life falls apart or they move out and go to college and they don't know how to do their own laundry let alone cook a piece of toast or craft dinner. Because... What they thought was love was this kindness of, let me take away any sort of pain or suffering. Let me do it all for you. And there's been no growth. There's been no development. Whereas love would say, as my mom did, great, you're 15, do your own laundry. As my dad would say, great, you didn't do your oil change. while well, your car blew up. Guess you don't have a car. We allow those things to happen. Yeah, Ted smirks because he just did that with Stefan yesterday. He's like, I wonder if he changed his oil. But we allow a form of pain, of suffering, because to a teenager with a broken car, because you didn't do an oil change, you are in the most amount of pain and suffering you could endure because you're trapped at home. <laughs> it's truth. You don't want to borrow dad's minivan to go pick up your girlfriend. But we allow that because there's growth, there's change, there's development, And if we want to attribute to our God being one that is good, that is powerful, that is benevolent, that is beyond all of us, that has a personality, that is an individual, something that we are created after, not that we have created God, then we must believe that he has room to see beyond what we can see, and we must believe that he can say no. And it is not an act of evil for him to say no. It is not an act of evil for us to feel pain or suffering in our life. Rather, it is a God of love who wants to grow, encourage, build up, support, develop, mark, and change us. Everything we want to cry about in our songs, but don't always want to live. And again, this is why we can't have this conversation when someone is going through pain and suffering, because you can't see that. You are in the midst of the hurt, and you just want to say, Why God? Why God? Why God? But if we can step back, if we can look at someone else's situation and be like, you are so much stronger because you endured this. Which brings me to divine humility. Divine humility. What I mean by this is that God continues to come to us and to accept us, that He is the God that pursues us. If He is one that is so great and so good, He's willing to humble Himself to come to us who can be so bad and so wrong. Ones who, with our free will, choose not to go to God until we are at the bottom when we are more akin to a sinking ship, and then we're like, okay, God, now I want you here. I'm going to give everything to you now that I'm going under. When I am not anything worth keeping myself, when I'm I'm done with myself, I'm ready to give it to you, God, and now you can have it. And God still says, okay. I mean, I was there in the beginning when things are good, and we could have done so much more and been together, but I will still take you when we're down here at the bottom. The human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. We don't want to give up our choice. If everything's good, why would I give up my own power to someone else? Why would I give up that choice? If I'm happy, if I'm content, if things are good, why would I give it up? Now, error and Sin both have this property that the deeper they are, the less the victim suspects their existence when a sin is deep-rooted in us, when we are so wrong about things, it gets buried and we can't see it. We're like, no, no, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. I got this, I'm right. But there are masked evil. Pain is unmasked, unmistakable evil. Every man knows that something is wrong when he's being hurt. Everybody knows something is wrong or being hurt. We don't go, oh, that hurts. Okay, maybe when we get tattoos, we say it hurts and we like it. But other than that, we don't say pain is good. It's an alert. It catches our attention right away. We're like, okay, something is happening that is not right. What are we doing with this? What's going on? Pain unmasks that sin, that evil, that error. St. Augustine said this about Abraham. Whatever God knew, and this is when Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac. Whatever God knew, Abraham at any rate did not know. It was his obedience that could endure such a command until the the event taught him. Whatever God knew, Abraham at any rate did not know that his obedience could endure such a command until the event taught him. We don't always know what we are capable of. God does, but we don't ourselves until an event takes us there, until pain and suffering makes us endure and we say, I can do this, I can take it, I can endure it, I can come out stronger, God be with me. But Abraham had no idea what he could do until God called upon him to do it. So we need to make sure that we are not always just coming to God when we're at our bottom. It's a poor thing to come to him as a last resort. To offer up our own when it's no longer worth keeping. Pain and suffering should not keep us from God. Too often when we pray, we do it alone because we're in the midst of pain and suffering and we're like, I'm just going to go hide. We're almost shameful of it to admit that we are weak or that we are hurting. Which brings me back to our song this morning. Hearing the amount of voices echo throughout this room. You were not alone. You were declaring in a public room a place. And that is something we need to be able to do with our pain and suffering. It's not hide in shame and be like, I must have done something wrong. My sin led me to this. God says, great, be there. I'm going to do this with you the whole time. I've put a people with you. I gave you fellowship and community in my creation because the God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, there's a trinity, there's a community that we believe in, a fellowship. It's already been modeled for us to be with people, to share and to express. And so here's my last few thoughts, because I I know this has been a heavy topic. But here's a couple purposes of pain. One, pain shatters the illusion that all is well. Pain shatters the illusion that all is well. It shakes you up. It shifts your perspective. Two, pain shatters the illusion that what we have, whether good or bad, is our own and enough. Pain shatters the illusion that what we have, whether good or bad, is our own and enough. Too often we want to do it on our own. And then pain says, well, guess what? You can't. Too often we're striving, we're like, I got this, I got this, I got this, and it's not maybe that we are running from God, but we forget God. In my first few years of ministry, I was such a criminal of this sin that I'm like, God, you've talented me, I'm great, and I ran my ministry until I burnt out. And I went through pain and suffering and had to step out because I burnt myself out because I didn't rely on God. I was like, I got it. And I was trying to do everything on my own. And so God said, here's some pain and suffering because guess what? You're not. You, you can't do the things of God without me. And it was a hard lesson for me to learn. To contend that I am learning to surrender myself by doing what is so attractive to me would be ridiculous. Ridiculous. I can't learn to surrender to God if I'm just always happy about what I'm doing. Pain and suffering teaches us that we need to surrender our will, our power to God and say, "God, you've got to do something because I can't." I acknowledge that. You've alerted me, I've realized I've hit my end, and now I'm willing to come. And I just pray and hope I can do that before. I do that now before I get to that breaking point again. So where do we go from here? We pray. (laughs) The simple answer is we pray. We come together as a body and support and lift up each other. We live in the community that our God lives in and through, and we keep hope and love. I spent this past week at OVPC, as I said. And on Thursday night, which is the traditional Holy Spirit night, you know, it's the last night of camp, so everything comes out then. We did a thing called a fire tunnel, which sounds really hokey and and worse than it really is. What we did is we lined up the pastors and and, uh, counselor leaders, and we had the kids just walk through this kind of like lineup. They were facing each other, and the students walked through, and we prayed for them. So it was a time that they could be prayed for as they just walked through a line. So you had multiple people praying. And as one kid's coming through, I see a couple other pastors praying for him, and I have no idea who he is. I've never met him. Like, we had three kids at camp, so, you know, there's a lot of kids I didn't know. And I see them kind of tear up a bit as they're praying for him, and I just kind of grab his hand, and I'm praying, and I I tear up a bit, and then he moves on, and I just feel God really pushing me. He's like, you need to give this kid a hug. I'm like, okay, you know what? I've been praying all week, God, let me be able to hear you. I want to be able to be led by you because I hear the other pastors, and I'm not an evangelical pastor, uh, evangel. I'm an evangelical pastor. I'm not an evangelistic pastor. That's it. I'm more of a teaching pastor. And, and so as they're up there and just talking about, like, God's going to save you, God's going to heal you, and he's just pouring into prayer, and they're like, God, tell me you need this or you need that. I'm like, I'm not that guy. So God, please, I want to be able to hear you that way. And so God's like, go hug this kid. I'm like, all right, I can do that one. That's fairly easy. And so he gets through the line, and I get to the end, and I go up to, to hug him, and he's still kind of crying a bit. And I'm like... Hey, I just feel, and I start stuttering and weeping. I'm like, I just grab him and hug him. I'm like, I just, God told me I need to hug you. And I don't know what you just went through or what you've gone through to get here. And he's just bawling in my shoulder. And we've never met each other. And I'm crying and he's crying. And then I just start apologizing. I'm just like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And that's all that came out of me. And I've never had an experience like that before. But this kid was going through some sort of pain and suffering. And God's way to deal with it was prayer and community and it's, I'm going to be there with you and all I can do is just support you and tell you I'm sorry and let's work through this and let's pray. Pain and suffering is inevitable. It is part of our world. It is part of our free will. We will cause pain and suffering. We will receive pain and suffering. But our God is there and stable throughout it all, still good, still powerful, and still willing to take us when we've broken ourselves down to the bottom. And so here's my last quote for you from Timothy Keller. Some suffering is given in order to chastise and correct a person for wrong patterns of life as in the case of Jonah, in Peril in the storm. Jonah's like, oh, I'm going opposite of where God wants me to go. Some suffering is given not to correct past wrongs, but to prevent future ones, as in the case of Joseph being sold into slavery. If anything, Joseph was protected until he was able to be king, as he kept being in these different slavery spots. He didn't have a choice to run away. He was protected. And some suffering has no purpose other than to lead a person to love God more. I love that part. There's some purpose other than to lead a person to love God more. To find a place of ultimate peace and freedom. I don't know if you've ever felt it, and I've felt it many times, is when I'm broken at an altar, when I'm just pouring out all the pain and suffering I have, that is when I find the most release as Tori was up here talking about her testimonies about a woman in a relationship with um, some sort of abuse and her husband was, was cheating on her and like the pain and suffering that woman would have been feeling but it was after prayer she found joy and release I don't know if you are going through any form of pain and suffering, if some sort of evil is affecting you, but what I want to do is I want to take five minutes at the end of this as a time of reflection. I'm not good at altar calls. That's, that's not the type of pastor I am. But I'm good for praying for people, and I'm good for giving you a point to stop and listen. Too often our prayers are just constant please. We forget to stop and just listen and say, God, what are you saying back? Do I know your voice when you speak to me? And so I have a song I want to play, and it's called Pieces, and it talks about God not teasing us, not only giving parts of himself to us. And so as it plays for three minutes, I just ask you to bow your head and, and listen for God. Listen if he's saying anything to you, if he's calling out to you. Are you able to respond? And then I'll be up here if anyone would like prayer, and I know we have a prayer team that will come up too. But pain and suffering is inevitable. But it's not something we have to go on alone. So Nellie, if you could play the song.